Psalm 32. I'm not sure where Psalms is. It's in the middle of your Bible. Psalm 32. It's a wonderful commentary in the book of Psalms. It tells this interesting story. During the 1800s, there was a distinguished minister in Australia. Yes, uh, it is possible to have a distinguished minister in Australia, apparently, according to this story. Anyway, anyway, he preached regularly on sin. And one of the church officers came to him one day and after, after one of his sermons and, and talked to him. And he said to this pastor, We do not want you to talk so plainly as you do about sin. If our boys and girls hear you talking so much about sin, they will more easily become sinners. Call it whatever you will, but do not speak so plainly about sin. And that's what the man told the pastor. Well, the minister arose from his desk and walked to a utility closet, brought back a small bottle of strychnine that was marked rat poison. Here's what he said. I see what you want me to do. And he was showing the man the rat poison. You want me to change the label. Suppose I take off this poison label on the strychnine and replace it with some milder label such as essence of peppermint. How would you like it if I did that? Well, the point he was trying to make was this, that the milder you make the label, the more dangerous you make the poison. You understand that? Those of you who are parents would understand this. You want to make sure that everything, and as a medical doctor, I'm sure it's important to have everything labeled properly. You don't want to go to the pharmacy and the pharmacy, pharmacists not have a clue what all those various medicines in there, what they are. We like to know what they are labeled and clearly labeled. The milder you make the label, the more dangerous you make the poison. And this is one of the values of this particular psalm, Psalm 32. And without changing the labels and minimizing the effect of sin, this psalm speaks clearly and directly to, these, to the devastating power of unconfessed sin in the life of of a believer. You say, why would I say a believer? Because it, 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 the title, which is not inspired, it says it, it is a psalm of David. And we know that David was a believer, described as a man after God's own heart. And as seen in the life of David, sin committed against God led down a devastating path. It led to sorrow. It led to a loss of vitality in his life. But also witnessed in David's life, uh, we, we see here that when he confessed his sin to God, there was a restoration of joy in his life. And from this magnificent piece of inspired literature, we conclude that confessing our sin is, is a vital part of living the victorious Christian life. Do you want to be a victorious Christian? Do you? Do you want to be a victorious Christian? Well, then pay attention to the words of Psalm 32. Listen closely to what the Holy Spirit is saying through these very important words. Look at verse 1, Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I don't know if you've picked up on this or not, but this psalm begins just like Psalm 1 does. Remember I told you Psalm 1 is an introduction to the entire Psalter. 
And it also begins the exact same way that Jesus began his sermon on the mount in Matthew chapter 5. It's beginning with that word, blessed, which can be translated happy, joyful, or exuberant. I love that word, just exuberant. It just makes you, gives you the warm, fuzzy feelings. And, and like I said, just like Psalm 1, the word blessed is in the plural. It's in the plural. It's not singular, it's in the plural. You say, well, so what? <laughs> does that have any significance? Yes, it does. This is significant because... When something is in the plural, like this word blessed here, it's intensifying the meaning of blessed. It just, it's, it's like pouring heaps of salt on it, if you will. It just intensifies the taste of something. That's what the plural is doing here. In other words, we're talking about abundant, overflowing blessing. Not just a little bit, but abundant, overflowing blessing. Uh, By the way, this could be translated this way. How abundantly, richly blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven. That is a literal translation of verse 1. Now, did you notice who is truly happy here? Did you notice who is truly happy? Because happy is a synonym of the word blessed here. The truly happy are those who have received God's forgiveness. And so I ask you the question, are you among those who are truly happy are you? Are you? Are you among those who are truly happy? Well, here's what Charles Spurgeon said, 1800s uh, preacher in London. Quote, Pardoning mercy is of all things in the world most to be prized, for it is the only and sure way to happiness. Blessedness is not in this case ascribed to a man who has been a diligent lawkeeper. By the way, does that describe any of you? Do you keep all of God's laws and commands? No, I don't. Neither do you. So, we can praise God that this is not ascribed to a man who has been a diligent lawkeeper. Spurgeon goes on to say, For then it would never come to us, but rather to a lawbreaker, who by grace most rich and free has been forgiven. Self-righteous Pharisees have no portion in this blessedness. Over the returning prodigal, the word of welcome is here pronounced. And the music and dancing begin. A full, instantaneous, irreversible pardon of transgression turns the poor sinner's hell into heaven and makes the heir of wrath a partaker of blessing. Woo! (laughs) Man, that just gives me shivers up my spine. Doesn't it? Because I recognize that I deserve eternal condemnation. I am a lawbreaker. And so are you. Let's look at these verses very closely, and what do we find here? Well, first of all, we see that transgression is forgiven. That's what it says in verse 1, isn't it? Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. By the way, in these first two verses, you're going to see uh, different words for in regards to sin. They're not sin, well, they are in a way synonyms, but they're not the exact same Hebrew word, and I'm, I'm going to point this out to you. But what does the word transgression mean? Transgression means this. It's an act of rebellion and disloyalty. It's an act of rebellion and disloyalty. Do you understand this truth that you are a rebel and that you are guilty of treason against the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Do you understand that? That's bad news, but I have good news for you because the word there in verse 1, forgiven, literally means to have one's sin lifted off and carried away. 
It's like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress as he flees the city of destruction with this burden on his back as Christian's walking out of the city of destruction with this burden that he can't get rid of. It wasn't until he looked to the cross and put his faith and his belief and his trust in Christ alone did that burden fall off. And that's what God does. He lifts it off and he carries it away. Therefore, forgiveness is an act of removal of sin and guilt. And by this act, uh, you say, well, well, why is this act important? Why is this important? Why should I care about having my sin lifted and carried away? Because unconfessed sin is, is like that great burden that Christian carried with him as he went out of the city of destruction to the celestial city. It's a great burden that's just going to weigh you down. It's going to weigh you down mentally. It's going to weigh you down physically. It's going to weigh you down emotionally. Again, here's what Charles Spurgeon said, quote, He who has once seen sin in its horrible deformity will appreciate the happiness of seeing it no more forever. Christ's atonement is the propitiation, the covering, the making of an end of sin. What a wonderful truth that you have a propitiator. That is a wrath absorber. You can see Jesus Christ, view Christ as a wrath absorber because you deserve to be lamb-blasted by God's wrath because of your sin. But you can be thankful that Christ has stepped in the way and has become your substitute, and He has absorbed God's wrath. That's what 1 John 4.10 talks about. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the wrath absorber for our sins. So first of all, we see that transgression is forgiven. Number two, sin is covered. Sin is covered. At the end of verse 1, it says, whose sin is covered. Blessed is this individual here whose sin is covered. Are you this individual? Can you honestly say that your sin is covered? Now, what does the word sin mean? Here's what it means. Listen closely. It's on the screen. Sin is an act that misses God's expressed and revealed will. It is often done intentionally. Often done intentionally. It misses, uh, it, by the way, this, this word here, sin, is an archery term. It's an archery term, and it literally means to miss the mark, to go astray. It's the same imagery you have in Romans chapter 3, when Romans 3 says, For all have sinned, you know the ending? And have come short of the glory of God. The glory of God is the standard. The glory of God is the bullseye, if you will. Here, I brought with me my one of my bows. I wanted you to—I didn't string it up, okay? I didn't string it up, so you're not freaking out on me, okay? Picture with me the imagery of of bow and arrow, okay? Because that's exactly what's going on here, okay? Just picture there be a uh, on this side. I would normally string up my my string. But the imagery is here is that, is that sin is like missing the mark. Sin is like going astray. Now that's, uh, that wall over there would be easy to hit. Okay? It would be very easy if I pulled back and shot the wall. That would be easy to hit. But let's, let's say 50 meters out there in the field somewhere, I had, I had some target. Now I don't know if you've ever shot a bow and arrow before, but there's a lot of things that can easily go wrong that makes it very easy for your 
to come short of the glory of God, to come short of the target, or for, for the arrow to go astray. Oh, there's all sorts of things. For, for example, these little uh, plastic veins, for example. If you had a cut in the vein, even one little cut in the vein could cause the arrow to go astray or for the arrow to fall short, or an arrow that's too short, an arrow that's too long, or an arrow that's not straight. If you try to shoot an arrow that's been bent, for example, uh, it, it can actually be quite dangerous. Or, or if you release it wrong, or well, there's all sorts of things that, that uh, if you're trying to hold this arm too rigid, there, it can go astray. There's all sorts of things that can go wrong when you're, when you're trying to shoot a target. And the Bible says in Romans 3 that the target or that what, you're aiming, what we're aiming for is the glory of God, His perfection, His holiness. It's a high standard, but we fall short. Just like, I mean, this is only a 40-pound bow. And, uh, you know, if, if I'm trying to shoot at a target a kilometer away, this, this arrow is hopelessly going to fall short. It will never reach a target that's a kilometer away. Well, that's the way sin is. We fall short. We, we go astray. That's what sin is there in, in verse 1b. By the way, the word covered is referring to that gracious act of atonement by which the sinner is reconciled and the sin is a matter of the past so that the Lord doesn't bring it up anymore to us as some grounds for His displeasure. (laughs) You can thank God for that. David knew the blessing of having his sins covered by God. He had a mountain of sin. Yes, he was a man after God's own heart, but he had a mountain of sin that he had committed, uh, things such as adultery, things such as murder and hypocrisy. He had committed those things, but now he he understood that those things were covered. They were concealed by God. God wasn't going to bring them up into his face again and rub them in his face. So in confessing his sin to God, the blemish of sin was put out of God's sight. Figuratively speaking, we know God sees everything. By the way, the same is true for us, if we're, if we're Christians, that is. And one of the greatest verses in the Bible is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, look at this, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And what? To cleanse us from some of our sins, right? Just the little ones. No, is that what it says? No, it doesn't say that, does it? To cleanse us from all sins, including, as David understood, things like, Adultery, murder, hypocrisy, lying, cover-up, you know, the list goes on and on. So sin is covered. Number three, iniquity is not charged. Or in other words, the the idea is here that uh, if you're looking at a new KJV or another translation, you might have the word imputed. Imputed has the idea, well, that's what Christ, God the Father does with Christ's righteousness. It's imputed into us so that we are justified, we are declared righteous. Now that's the idea here that that the Lord does not impute iniquity to us. We're not charged. Uh, the word iniquity is, is a crooked or wrong act, often associated with a conscious and intentional intent to do wrong. God does not charge us with that guilt, with that charge. And if you're a Christian, you should thank God that He graciously chose not to count your sin against you. He could. But if you're a Christian and if you confess your sin, He won't. In other words, what I'm trying to say is this, that the debt that you owe, and it's huge, and the punishment that you deserve to pay are no longer on God's books. 
That's what justification is. You're no longer on God's books. It's as if God has a book, and God's book says you owe Him some huge amount that you will never be able to pay. And God opens His book, and you stand before God. You know you're guilty. You know you're hopeless. And God opens His book, and He reads the words, Paid in full. Signed, Jesus Christ. That's exactly what's happened if you're a believer. Why? Because, as I said, Jesus Christ has paid your debt. He became your substitute. And so God the Father looks at His books and He sees paid in full, signed His Son, Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. You've been healed of an incurable disease called sin. Thanks to Jesus Christ. Number four, deception is removed. Look at the end of verse two. In whose spirit there is no deceit. David had lived for many months. Some believe even up to a year. Deceiving himself, striving to deceive others. He was rationalizing his sin. He strove to cover his sin by having Uriah killed. And then marrying Bathsheba. But the reality is that David never fooled God, did he? He never fooled God. Because God sees all. God knows all. You can't fool God. So don't be deceived. Don't deceive yourself because God knows all. You're not going to fool Him. It's better to be honest about your sin. Look what uh, Jeremiah 17 talks about our hearts. says that our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately, uh, desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then God answers the question. Here it is. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Well, as we transition into verse 3 and 4, I want you to notice there's a a seismic shift here, if you will. And the shift uh, is going from the present to the past. In in verses 1 and 2, David's kind of contemplating on the present, but now he's going to look at his past here. David's looking back to that time that uh, he's obviously suppressing his sin, and we assume that he's referring to that sin where he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah. So with that in mind, let's look at verses 3 and 4. And we see here the second major truth, that the unrepentant are chastened. The unrepentant are chastened. Look at verse 3. David says, when I kept silent, that is in regards to my sin, he says, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. First thing I want you to take note of here is don't refuse to confess your sin to God. Don't refuse to confess your sin to God. Notice what David does. He he talks about this in verse 3. When I kept silent. It was when I kept silent, then I suffered all these things we're going to talk about here. So don't refuse to uh, hold your sin in. Don't refuse to confess your sin to God. Second of all, unconfessed sin brings God's curse, as we've just read about here. Look at these examples that David gives here. These are the examples of God's curse that comes upon us as a result of sin. 
First of all, David says, my bones wasted away. <laughs> What's that all about? I, I think he's, it's indicating some sort of an interior pain that he dealt with. Literally, he had, he had physical pain. The next one shows that it wasn't just physical pain he's dealing with. He, he's also dealing with emotional trouble here because David says that he groaned all day. He was groaning. This emotional pain was just eating him up. He could not get rid of it because he refused to confess his sin to God. The third thing that we notice here is that God's judgment was constantly upon him. Verse 4 says it was day and night. Day and night, even in his sleep, he could not get away from God's judgment. It was constantly upon him. God's hand was heavy upon him. Unless you miss the point here, David understood exactly where this judgment was coming from. Did you see that in verse 4? David says, day and night, your hand, Yahweh's hand, was heavy upon him. David understood exactly where this emotional and this physical uh, trouble and pain was coming from. David's failure to confess his sin led to a debilitating and draining weakness. The cause of the agony was obviously coming from God Himself. There was no release from his, the agony of the guilt that he was dealing with, even at night. God leaves no refuge to flee to. When you are a sinner and refuse to confess your sin to Him, there is nowhere you can flee. Nowhere. Not even in your own brain. Fourth of all, we see that David's strength dried up. As he says at the end of verse 4, my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. <laughs> We've experienced droughts here in Waikato, haven't we? Imagine some poor little plant that isn't able to get any water. It doesn't rain for months at a time. Well, David understood that. He says that his own vitality was like some poor little plant in the midst of a drought that didn't have water. It's alone, it's shriveling up, and it's dying, and that's what was happening to David. His strength was drying up. David's failure to confess his sins led to this debilitating and just draining weakness. His soul was aching. He was racked with pain. He was agonizing. He was depressed. He was literally downcast. His zest for life was just slowly draining away, just... It's almost like he was bleeding to death. Let's move on to verse 5. It's important to note here that verse 5 acts kind of like a hinge, if you will. It's kind of like a pivot uh, on which this entire chapter is swinging. You guys know what a hinge is, right? You've got hinges on doors that, that help the door to swing open and close. And verse 5 is kind of like that hinge that... that it, if you, if you can picture Psalm 32 like a door, it's swinging. That's what verse 5 is doing here. It's a climactic turning point for David. And it is so because of the truth that he's talking about here in verse 5. Let's see what he says. Verse 5 says, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So first, the, the third main point that David brings out here is that the repentant are restored. The repentant are restored. A repentant person, by the way, is one who changes his mind in regards to sin. A repentant person will see sin as God sees it, and you will see yourself as God sees you. How does this happen? How does this happen? Well, David explains it. First of all, acknowledge your sin to God. 
Acknowledge your sin to God. And by the way, did you notice who David acknowledges his sin to here? He doesn't go run off to some Roman Catholic priest, does he? Well, they didn't exist at that time. But the answer is, he acknowledges his sin to God. And why does he do that? He confessed his sin to to God because his sin was against God. Now please note here that all sin is ultimately against God. All sin, notice what I said, all sin is ultimately against God. You say, well, what about David? I mean, with Bathsheba, didn't, didn't he sin against Uriah? Yes. But ultimately, it was against God. And so even when it's, it's a sin that's committed against another person, it is against God. And that's exactly what David says after he sinned in Psalm 51, verse 4. He says, against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now you might be sitting there thinking, okay, how do you know David's talking about God? Because all we got is a bunch of pronouns here. How do we know we know how do we know that David's talking about God and not someone else here? Well, if you look at the context, David answers it because in verse one, David says, Have mercy on me, O God. That's what verse one says. The, the context answers the question. David is talking about God. He recognized, I have sinned against you, God. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So first of all, acknowledge your sin to God. Number two, uncover your sin. Verse 5b says, my iniquity I have not hidden. It's the exact opposite. But it, the idea in verse 1 that sin is covered, exact opposite. I mean, after a prophet confronted David, what did he do? David didn't attempt to conceal his sin any longer, did he? As soon as Nathan the prophet pointed his finger at David and said, you are the man, what did David do? Ah, no, it's somebody else. You got the wrong guy. No, he didn't do that, did he? No, he he confessed his sin to God, didn't he? He didn't attempt to conceal his sin any longer. By the way, that phrase, did not cover up, means to bring something out into the open, to reveal something. The confession of sin is like uncovering your sin before God, and in the process we're exposing it for what it really is. You are recognizing sin as God sees it. That's really what confession is. Number three, confess your sin to God. Confess your sin to God. If you look at verse 5c, David says, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. What is confession? What is confession? To confess means to speak out openly of our sin to God. Speak openly of our sin to God. By the way, those of you who are parents, make sure you teach your kids what, a, what an apology and confession really is. You, are you hearing me? My kids do this all the time. Oh, I'm sorry. <clears throat> is that a confession? Is that you know an apology? No. You haven't confessed. You have not apologized until you have named your sin. You have acknowledged your sin. I'm sorry I was unkind in my, in my biting words. These, these words were not edifying. They did not bring grace to the hearer. Okay. As parents, make sure you teach your kids that, please. So confession is speaking out openly of our sin to God. Notice again here that Yahweh is the object of our confession. He is the object. He is the primary object. The object of our confession should not be some priest 
Because Jesus Christ is your high priest. Look at Hebrews 2.17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You don't have to go to some human priest because you have the great high priest. Number four. If you do these first three in verse five, then the last part of verse five will happen. Then God will forgive your sin. Look at the end of verse five. What does it say? Put your eyeballs on it. It says, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. What a wonderful truth. God forgives sin. The word forgave literally means to have the burden of sin lifted off. Just as Christian did as he looked to the cross and that, that, that burden that was on Christian's back fell off. The chains fell off. My heart was set free. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. And then you're able to walk forth and follow God. What a wonderful thing because before sin is confessed, it's, it is a very, very heavy burden. The ultimate example of lifting up or guilt-bearing is obviously accomplished in the work of Jesus Christ. There's no greater example than Hebrews 9.28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, notice this, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. It's a once-for-all sacrifice, and He bore your sin. So praise God for forgiveness. Even though forgiveness is a good thing, it's a great thing, I would hope that you would do something with this great blessing that God has given you. David certainly did. David didn't just say, oh great, thank you God, I really appreciate that, and then nothing else happened after that. No, there, there, there is more to this psalm here. And notice that after having experienced God's forgiveness here, David calls his readers and his hearers to apply these insights to their own lives through personal action. Now I want you to see the personal action that David calls us to here. Look at this. Because the fourth point that David brings out is this. The repentant encourage others to seek God. The repentant encourage others to seek God. And the first thing that David talks about here in verse 6 is that he, he exhorts us to pray to God. Look at this, verse 6. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you. In a time when you may be found, surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You say, what? For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you? Some people people might look at that and say, well, what's the point? You're godly, you don't need to pray, right? No, (laughs) that's not the point. Uh, The godly are those who recognize they are sinners and they pray to God to to confess their sin to Him. So we we ought to urge other Christians to seek God's forgiveness in prayer of confession. Now listen to what this commentator had to say about that phrase there, that that little phrase, when you may be found. This This is important. Listen to this. There is a sense of realistic urgency in the psalmist's call to prayer. When God is always present with humans, He is not always available to be found by them. Reluctance to confess leads to delay and compounds the possibility of human error. God does not make Himself readily available to those who seek Him only in times of extreme distress. The psalmist's exhortation is that a relationship of trust and reliance on God must be built in times of relative peace and security. 
so that when the mighty waters of trouble come, the one who has an established pattern of communication with Yahweh will not be overcome. So true. But when do we usually seek Yahweh? In times of distress. When the floods of great waters are coming near us, as it says. (laughs) That's usually when we seek God, don't we? Don't do that. Pray to God at all times. So the repentant encourage others to see God by, first of all, praying to God, and second of all, resting in God. Where do you turn when the storms of life hit you? What do you do? What do you do with it? Oh, woe is me. Is that what you do? Or do you go see a psychologist? What do you do? We do all sorts of things. For David, he placed his trust and faith in God. As verse 7 says, it's, it, here's what David does. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. And so when the storms of life hit David, he puts his trust, his belief, and his faith in God because God was his hiding place. So David could honestly say, Yahweh, you are my fortress. You are my hiding place. Now it's interesting as you look at this, That God was David's hiding place from God himself. Did Did you notice this in the context? God is David's hiding place from God himself. Now why do I say that? Because who is chastening David? Who is the one chastening David? It was God who was chastening him here. Did you notice that in verse 4? For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, David says. David recognized who was chastening him. And so David recognizes the one who is chastening him is the one that he can flee to when he needs to hide. It was his divine hand that was heavy upon David. In other words, forgiveness for the believer is a deliverance from God himself, from God's chastisement. Number three, learn from God. Learn from God. Look at verse 8. David says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. And on the basis of David's own painful experience, he's able to counsel others. Think about this. This makes total sense, doesn't it? I mean, if you think about it, who often makes the best counselors? The guys who sit up in the ivory towers never experiencing pain? Or would you rather... Would you rather go to the person who has experienced pain, who's, who's had some experience in life, who knows what you're going through? What kind of a counselor would you rather have? David was a good counselor because he, he had learned from his experiences. He had been there. He had done that. Number four, submit to God. Submit to God. Notice what David says in verse 9. Do not be like the horse or like the mule which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. The idea is submission here. I mean, what's going on in this verse? David's exhorting us to uh, not be like two animals here, right? I hope you're familiar with these animals. He's saying, don't be like the obstinate horse. Don't be like that stubborn mule that refuses to go where the rider is leading him. Why do we put bits in horses' mouths? <laughs> so the rider can get the horse to do what they, supposedly what they want the horse to do, right? 
Mules are, and donkeys are notoriously known for being stubborn and rebelling. And David has understood that, I'm sure, and using that as an illustration that we can all relate to. But the idea is that David's saying, hey, you don't be like the horse, don't be like that mule, submit. Submit to God. Don't make God have to stick a bit in your mouth and, and, and jerk your head around to make you do what He wants you to do. Here's what one commentator said. Quote, The warning is clear for the person who will not humble himself before God's sovereign rule. If we do not submit to the Lord, we will be controlled by bit and bridle. If the people of God act as disobedient children, He will use severe means to get their attention and gain control. End quote. Wouldn't it be much better if we just submit? I don't know. I've never actually had a bit and bridle in my mouth, but I understand they're not very comfortable. <laughs> I've seen horses having those things in their mouths, and they, they don't particularly enjoy them. They'd much rather you stick an apple in their mouth, wouldn't they? Or give them uh, you know, some sugar or something. They're not comfortable. They're not meant to be comfortable. And may we learn from the horse and the mule. Let's, let's skip over... Uh, I'm going to skip over Hebrews chapter 12 there, Aaron. Let's go on to number five. Trust in God. Trust in God. David's exhorting us to trust in God in verse 10, which says, Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. And here we have David contrasting something. He's contrasting the sorrows of the wicked with God's unfailing love. <laughs> what would you rather have? Ooh, let's see, that's a tough one. I, do I want sorrows or do I want God's unfailing love? Well, I mean, how do you get it? How do you get that? If you want God's unfailing love, how do you get it? David, because David was trusting in the Lord here, he knew that the Lord's love would surround him, would protect him. Do you understand this kind of love? Do you understand this kind of, This is not some emotional, whimsical uh, changing love that you may be familiar with. No, this unfailing love refers to God's covenant love. This is the wonderful word hesed. It's a binding, unconditional commitment on God's part to those who are trusting in Him. It's binding. It's unconditional. And, and you can mess up, and I do often. I fail God. I sin against God. But I can rest in the hesed, the binding, unconditional, unfailing love of God. Number six, we're exhorted to rejoice in God. Verse 11 says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Oh, great. Isn't that awesome that we can actually rejoice, that we can be glad, that we can shout for joy? Now this call is a call to all Christians to rejoice in God's forgiveness here. This isn't a call to, uh, again, to some ivory tower person or some, some person who thinks they're perfect. No. This is the person who's been forgiven, and God calls them righteous. God calls them upright in heart. Notice specifically here that a call is going out to the righteous, and the call is going out to the upright. So my friend, if you have never put your trust in Christ alone to get you to heaven then you can't be happy. You can't be glad. You cannot rejoice like David's talking about here. It's not possible. Instead, you should be very sad because you can't go to heaven by your good works. The Bible makes that quite clear, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, 
but according to His grace. And it's through faith in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. So if you've never done that, my friend, you're, you're sad. You can't rejoice in God. One commentator, one commentator said this, quote, At the heart of Psalm 32 is the act of confession of sin. Not only does the psalmist confess to God, but he makes that confession within the hearing of the worshiping community or congregation. You say, uh, well, I know the Bible says to confess my sin to God, but, I mean, uh, isn't that commentator stretching it a bit here? I mean, surely the Bible doesn't tell me to confess my sin to other Christians, does it? Yes, it does. James 5, verse 16, look at this. In case you've never read this verse and understood it, let me explain this. James 5, 16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another. You hear that? Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. You say, okay, Pastor Scott, you're right. Okay. James 5.16 says that I am to confess my sins to one another. I'm to pray for one another. But I don't have to do that, do I? I don't have to do that, do I? (laughs) If you're thinking that way, you're wrong. If you look that word up, confess, the word confess is a continuous command that you are to do. It's not an option, nor is it a one-time event. This is to be something you do for the rest of your life, continuously doing it for the rest of your life. It's not an option, it's a command. Uh, Quite frankly, I was a bit surprised to see that when I looked that up, because that that was actually something new to me that I learned this week. I thought that was an option. But God says, no, I command you to confess your sin to one another. Now here's what John MacArthur says about this verse. Listen to this. The inspired writer was well aware that sin is most dangerous in an isolated believer. Sin seeks to remain private and secret, but God wants it exposed and dealt with in the loving fellowship of other believers. Therefore, James called for mutual honesty and mutual confession as believers pray for one another. Maintaining open, sharing, and praying relationships with other Christians will help keep believers from bottoming out in their spiritual lives. Such relationships help give the spiritual strength that provides victory over sin. And they also provide godly pressure to confess and forsake sins before they become overwhelming to the point of total spiritual defeat. End quote. So I want you to see this isn't some just wacko idea that I'm coming up with off the top of my head. There are many, many people who understand this truth. Many people who understand the Bible know that this is a command of God that you must confess your sin to one another. So again, yet again, we have another one another command in Scripture. Yet again, we have another reason that we are to meet together, that we are to be a local congregation, glorifying God as we live amongst one another. Well, I found, uh, I don't know, maybe you haven't found this out to be the case for you, but I I have personally found that confession to God as well as to another human being is, is an important step in, in seeking freedom from the bondage of my sin. Sin's a horrible burden that is constantly with me, but, but having other believers to, to talk with and to pray with and to confess my sin to is, is very, very encouraging. <coughs> and so my prayer to you is that you would find 
an accountability person or a, an accountability group where this would be the case in your own life. You say, well, that's uncomfortable. I know. Would you rather live with your sin? Or would you rather understand the blessedness of forgiveness? What would you rather understand? Where would you rather live? Have you been able to answer the question that we talked about at the beginning? Who is truly happy? Who is truly happy? The Bible clearly says that the forgiven are truly happy. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. So the Bible clearly states that. So my question to you is, have you been forgiven? Have you? If not, what are you waiting for? My friends, what are you waiting for? I want you to understand what I understand and what David understood, the blessings of forgiveness. Confess your sin to God while He may be found. While He may be found. Don't don't take God for granted. Don't take His grace and His mercy and His long-suffering for granted. The Bible says, confess your sin to God while He may be found. So don't delay, because the blessings are well worth it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are a God who forgives sins. We're thankful for Your unfailing love, even though we have failed You so, so often. Please, Father, don't give us what we deserve. We ask for grace. May we understand grace. May this week be a week where we preach the Gospel to ourselves. May we not come to the Bible and, and to our own sin with proud hearts, but may we come with contrite, humble hearts, recognizing, as Romans 3 says, we're all sinners. None of us are righteous, not even one. So forgive us for our pride. Forgive us for our pharisaical, self-righteous attitudes that we all have. May we not think that we can be perfect in this life, but may we strive for perfection. You've commanded us to. May we strive to be like Christ. Give us that kind of a heart and that kind of a mind. May we seek the mind of Christ. May we be repenters this week, having short sin accounts with you, understanding the wonderful truth that the forgiven are blessed. Multiple, overflowing, abundant blessings are to those who are repenters. (laughs) Father, I thank you that You have revealed this truth to us who are sinners. We're thankful that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. May we understand this truth. Give us illumination. Open our minds and our hearts to this truth. May we live in the light of the gospel. May we be understanding of one another, recognizing that that, uh, we're all sinners. May we have the attitude that each one of us is the greatest sinner that we know. May we not be judgmental. May we come to one another seeking to take the log out of our own eye before we try to take the little splinter out of our fellow believer's eye. May we not be condescending or proud. but May we be humble as we seek to live amongst one another in a in a local church that is striving to obey the one another commands. We know it's uncomfortable to do these things, Father, but I pray that you would give us the grace that we would be a people who confesses our sins to one another, who, who is praying for one another, 
recognizing that, hey, we need to take heed lest we fall. May we not be like David, content, just uh, sitting back on our laurels, so to speak. But may we be a people who has short sin accounts, who is, is always preaching the gospel to ourselves, who is always living in the light of the gospel, recognizing that without grace at any moment we could fall. Oh, may we live in that light. In your name we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Let's sing a, uh, a psalm, actually, 353. 353. Let's respond to Psalm 32 by singing 353.